42 to 47, a measuring stick for the church. Acts 2, 42 to 47, a measuring stick for the church. These notes are available at um, the blog, mitchjolly.wordpress.com. Uh, and they are intended to go along with the sermon audio. So if you go back and listen online during the week or people do that, by all means, feel free. And the notes are designed for you to follow along. So there they are. One of the greatest helps in studying the book of Acts is to understand that it's not completely prescriptive. But it's not just fully descriptive. Okay? You understand the difference? Prescription, like the doctor tells you, he writes a Prescription, right? That is, you are to do these things. Prescription. Descriptive, simply describing what happened. All right? Acts isn't completely prescriptive. There are places that do prescribe good Christian behavior. But it's not fully descriptive, right? So there are places that are prescriptive. There are places that are descriptive. And and so part of the challenge of reading Acts is knowing the difference, right? But what we do see in Acts is Luke's description, particularly in our passage today, verse 42 to 47, of how the Holy Spirit empowers and advances the gospel of the kingdom through every disciple engaging their domain of society. It's easy, it's very easy for us to focus on the apostles. But the apostles are not the catalysts in the book of Acts. It's easy for us to focus on Paul. Because Paul's a big hero figure. But Paul is not the catalyst in the book of Acts. It's easy to focus on Peter. It's easy to focus on big names. But the reality is none of them are catalysts. The Holy Spirit, through the preached gospel and public engagement, making disciples... Who make disciples is the catalyst recipe. It's interesting to take note of the irony of Paul's impetus to get to Rome. Got to get to Rome. Got to get to Rome. Got to get to Rome. But when we get to Acts 28, who are the first people to greet him when he gets off the ship? Some brothers. You understand? The gospel beat him there. Because it's not Paul who brings the gospel to Rome. Other unnamed disciples did that. Let me say that again. Other unnamed, unheralded disciples did that. Do you feel that? Other unnamed, unheralded disciples did that. The gospel does not advance on the back of superstars. The gospel advances through the powerful preached gospel of every disciple making disciples in every domain of society. And it's Jesus who writes it down for eternal reward, not man, so that you may get it all here. Paul doesn't bring the gospel to Rome. Paul mobilizes, Paul instructs, and he moves on after his first imprisonment in Rome. You see, Paul knows this because he writes a little letter in your Bible called the book of Romans. You got it. He was writing to this church who had already been planted by regular disciples, as if there is such thing as a regular disciple. 
they're only followers of Jesus. Who have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in them. As everybody else who follows Jesus. Greater things than these you will do because I go to the Father. Jesus said. So the reality is. It's not the superstars. As a matter of fact, Acts 8, 1-4 reminds us that the apostles, after the stoning of Stephen, stay in Jerusalem. And the church is scattered. And it tells us that everywhere they went, they went preaching the gospel. Making disciples and planting churches. Remember, we say this, every disciple a church planter. Leadership, Titus 1-5. It's in the manual. Read it. Titus 1.5, leadership is appointed from within after churches are planted from making disciples in every domain of society. We get that backward. We think you've got to have a bunch of pastors and superstars to go plant a church and draw a crowd. That's not how it happens in the Bible. Remember what we say? Remember our DNA? K, kingdom, D, S, C, The gospel of the kingdom, the rule of Jesus Christ, His salvation and His rule over all things is powerful. And it saves people. It makes disciples. And it does so within every domain of society. And from those domains of society, churches are started because Jesus said, I will build my church. Building the church is not our job. That's Jesus' job. Our job is to make disciples preaching the gospel of the kingdom in every domain of society. And from there, Jesus will build His church. They didn't start with a church service. They started by being transformed by the gospel of the kingdom. And they were made disciples who operated within their domain of society. And they made disciples in their domain of society. And from that platform of domain engagement, Jesus constructed His church. And I'll tell you all this by way of reminder because that's the lens by which we need to read and study Acts 2, 42-47 this morning. Ready? Let's look at it. Acts 2, 42-47. And they devoted themselves... By the way, Eric did such a great job last week preaching a hard passage. So praise God for him continuing to raise up leaders out of our church. That is a work of the Spirit. There's, can I just say this? I don't know anywhere else in Rome where people have as many pastors and pastors in training and who are, and let me just say this publicly. If you are 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, men, if anyone aspires to the office, he desires a noble task. Jesus does not inspire the word calling there. So I'm not going to do a talk on domains, all right? The pastorate is not a calling. It's not the word the Bible uses. It is a noble desire. And if your character is intact, list the character traits, then I invite you to come run that. See me, and I'll get you started. We're going to start walking guys through this. Decide if they're church planters or pastors, and we'll figure it out from there. But if you have a noble desire to shepherd the people of God, that is from the Lord. And you can do that bivocationally. Okay? So invitation. Come see me. You hear that? Public invitation. Got it? Public invitation. You hear it? Public invitation. Why? Because God's raising up people to shepherd the people of God as He continues to plant churches. So if you want to be part of that, come see me. Alright? Got it? Thank you, Eric. did an awesome job. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. We've got five observations we're going to see out of this text this morning. Observation number one, what do we see? Here it is. Disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they were devoted to some core disciplines, which I think here are very prescriptive of what ought to be inside the nucleal function. Is nucleal a word? The nucleic function of the church. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves to that. So what does that mean? Well, number one, the disciples were following Jesus' devotion to His teaching. And they were obeying what Jesus taught them in following His teaching. And they were obeying Jesus by following His teaching through those He entrusted His teaching to, the apostles. This is huge. Why do they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Because Jesus taught themselves to be devoted to His teaching. Jesus came and He gathered disciples. And what did He begin to do? He began to live life with them. And He taught them from the Scriptures. We looked on Easter Sunday at the post-resurrection experiences. And what is Jesus doing? He's going through the Old Testament. He started with Moses. And He went through the Psalms and the prophets. And what did He do? He showed them everything concerning Himself. He taught them how to read their Bible. Taught them how to study their Bible. Taught them how to preach their Bible. Jesus was teaching them. And so therefore, he's raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven, tells them to go disciple the nations. And what do they do? They devote themselves to what Jesus taught them to do. And the apostles' job was to teach what Jesus taught them to do. And so therefore, they devoted themselves to learning and being reminded of what Jesus said to do. What does this mean? Number two, it means that the teaching of the apostles. And this is a, this is sort of a... I'm superimposing this onto the text a little bit, okay? So I'm not exegeting. I'm isogeting, reading this on. So pardon me for a second, which is kind of important. The apostles' teaching is canonized in the New Testament. Now, if you want to learn about how that happened, you come on Wednesday nights. We teach through that stuff and we'll teach you more, right? How did we get what we got? But the apostles' teaching is canonized. It is captured in the New Testament. One of the criteria for making sure it made it into the canon of Scripture was it had to be apostolic. It had to come from the apostles. And the apostles were the ones Jesus entrusted the teaching to. And so we have Jesus' teaching in the manual, which is why we teach from the manual. It's because it is a way we practice being devoted to Jesus' teaching. Make sense? Well, what else does this mean? Number three, the disciples were devoted to fellowship as Jesus modeled it. Jesus modeled fellowship, and He modeled it in small group ministry. Jesus had three, and outside that three, had a total of twelve that He poured His life into. Jesus modeled fellowship. So therefore, what did they do? They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to meeting together, doing life together. Living life together, serving one another, exercising their giftedness together. What does this mean? Number four, the disciples were devoted to the Lord's Supper. The breaking of bread here, this little, the language used here, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Breaking of bread has the definite article. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands to indicate you know what the definite article is. A definite article is the the. And it's different than an indefinite article, which is like a. A breaking of bread could be anything. 
right? But when you talk about the breaking of bread, you begin to narrow down into something. What is the breaking of bread? We'll look at Luke 24 on Easter Sunday. At the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized it was Jesus walking with them on the road to Emmaus, right? What is this breaking of bread? This is what we do every Sunday. This is why we do it every Sunday. Is they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And that is the institution of breaking the bread and drinking the cup and being reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. It wasn't a passive thing they did quarterly. Or once a year, or maybe never. You know, people say sometimes, well, you do that every Sunday, and it kind of becomes habitual, and you lose its meaning. I say, do you eat every day? Does that ever come become habitual? And Do you ever take it for granted? Well, no. Likewise, that's a poor excuse to not be reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Or it's going to lose its meaning. Well, try that on eating for the next 40 days. I'm just not going to eat because I don't want it to lose its meaning. Nobody in this room is going to do that. That's foolery, right? And so they were devoted to being reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What else does this mean? It means they were devoted to prayer. Prayer gets the definite article too. The prayers. And these are likely prayers they already were acquainted with inside their heritage. And so they were devoted to times of prayer. And they were practicing the faith inside the cultural construct they had. Six, what does this mean? Well, here is one I'm not going to have time to unpack because we really don't have that much time. There's missiological stuff going on here. This was messy. And it would lead to conflict, or as we like to say, collision with culture. As ministry begins to ramp up. You see, we take for granted... Living in a Christian-influenced culture. But these disciples lived in a Jewish culture informed by Hellenization. If you don't know that, that's the Greekification of culture. It was Alexander the Great's effort to bring the world together with a common culture. So one language, right? One culture. So these were Jewish men and women living inside a Jewish culture informed by Hellenization and ruled by Roman law. That's hefty. Right? And so therefore the developing church would practice within the cultural practices they knew. And it would be 300 plus years before a culture, a Christian culture would begin to emerge. So in other words, this is messy. As they practiced within their domains of society, it's going to get messy when Peter and John go to the temple to worship and they heal a man. And then... They begin to preach the gospel. And then they called into the Jewish leaders and told not to preach in this name anymore. And they said, well, geez, we can't do that because by this name, salvation is brought to the world. So we have to preach in Jesus' name. And then Stephen's going to preach in Jesus' name and get stoned to death. And they're going to get scattered. The conflict was coming. Does that make sense? It was messy. Listen, doing ministry is messy because we are dealing with culture and we're dealing with the kingdom of God that is intended to replace that culture as the gospel advances so it was messy so what do we do with all this right we've looked at six things this means what do we do with it number one we imitate the early example of devotion to the core disciplines of following Jesus listen through your research could you guys work on that I don't know what that is that's really kind of y'all hear that popping that's really bothering my head and so um see if you guys can maybe it's me if it's me tell me I'll by all means repair what I'm doing but see if we can 
knock that out. What do we do with this? Well, number one, we imitate this early example of devotion to core disciplines of following Jesus. Scripture. That's why we preach from the Bible. This is why we encourage you in radical life groups. Open your Bible. Review what we preached on Sunday morning. Read the text. Talk about it together. Read the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures. Be together in fellowship, which is the hardest thing to do in a post-Christian South. Because everybody has everything else to do other than meet with other believers. And it infringes on the community of the kingdom. You've got to practice the discipline of fellowship. Third, Lord's Supper. We come together to take the Lord's Supper. Fourth, prayer. Engaging in these core disciplines. Second thing we can do with this is we have to exercise patience as we make disciples in our part of the world and as we make disciples in this work over in South Rome. The temptation is going to be to bring people into our culture and expect them to act like us. And let me just throw this on the table. If God would so grace us to truly make us a multi-ethnic church, we're going to have to be comfortable not being white. And some of you guys are going to leave. There is nothing like the community of the kingdom being global that causes people who have deep-seated sin issues to run from the conflicting work of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to obey the Great Commission and disciple the nations, disciple Roman Floyd County, we have to be a place where all nations can come and be part And the culture is not white, it's not black, it's not Hispanic, it's not Asian, it's kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, all come under the rule of Christ and together we don't lose our uniqueness. It blends into the people of God. That's how it ends, Revelation 4, 5, 6, and 7. John got a look at the end. He saw, I looked and behold, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language gathered before Jesus. It's to look like that now. That's not for then. We preach the gospel in every domain of society, make disciples here. That is the way it's to be now. Which is why sometimes you come in here and it's it's not bluegrass playing on the speakers. It's Trip Lee. Because, hey, number one, white people have to have the dumb token slow song on every album. I'm cutting grass the other day. I'm thinking, why do we people put the token? I don't like slow songs, but they put the slow song on every album. And I just skip, jump, jump, right? Get over it. Because back in the day, you had the eight track and you had to listen to it. And it had to be good. Now they're just like, I want to be emo. And they put the slow song. And oh, geez, I can't cut grass to slow music. And so fast songs. So we're going to play stuff that's not your genre. And that's okay. Ministry is going to get messy. Cultures are going to collide. Great book you need to read. It's sitting in the notes. Right color, wrong culture. Brian Lawrence. Right color, wrong culture. Brian Lawrence. Read it. I'm not even joking. Right color, wrong culture. Brian Lawrence. Right? Because it gets messy. But they were devoted to these core things that look like the kingdom. They didn't look bound by culture because they're not bound by culture notice there's no prescription here on the kind of music they use when they met how they met what it looked like just when they gathered they were devoted to jesus teaching the bible being together remembering his death burial and resurrection the supper and praying all right this is one of the missiological reasons three of church doesn't look normal <laughs> One of the reasons we don't smell normal, figuratively. We want it to look like the kingdom, not a cultural 
representation of middle class white America. Observation two, what do we see? The disciples were in awe of God as signs and wonders were done. So as they were doing these core things, meeting together under the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Literally, this word awe is fear. When we hear fear in the West because of entertainment and movies, we think terror. We think scary movies. That's not the biblical concept of fear. The biblical concept of fear is awe, which is why the ESV translates it awe instead of fear. Awe, this amazingness, this standing in absolute enraptured amazement. Wow. Awe describes every follower of Jesus' experience in the community of the kingdom. And it tells us miraculous things were happening as the apostles did their work. Now, geez, I really, really, really would love to drill down here. And I just don't have the time. The apostles' job, the apostolic gifting, is to constantly be pushing, to be pushing, to be pushing the envelope, moving beyond the boundaries set up by culture. And in case you haven't figured it out, that's what I am. I'm constantly pushing, constantly pushing, because that's the apostolic job. And as they pushed and moved past the boundaries of where normalcy was, amazing things were happening, and the whole church stood in awe. What does this mean? Well, it means, number one, the whole fellowship saw and responded in awe to the work of the Spirit. It wasn't just a few who were experiencing awe. Everybody. Secondly, signs and wonders accompany apostolic sending. Now be careful here. That doesn't mean that signs and wonders only happen at the hands of the apostles. Signs and wonders happened as the apostles did their job and the whole church partook in them. The reality is signs and wonders accompany pushing the edges of the envelope. I'm going to throw something on you here. Are you listening? Look right up here and pay attention. Right here. The inverse may be true here too. Signs and wonders do not accompany sending and going and pushing. In other words, if the fellowship, the community of the kingdom is never pushing, never pushing to obey the Great Commission, never moving outside its comfort levels, we may also expect there to be no signs and wonders. What don't you see in the Western church? Signs and wonders. Why? It could be there is no pushing of the frontiers. Awe is the natural human response to coolness. I actually wrote that in my notes. And it is absolutely astoundingly cool when King Jesus brings things under His rule. And we should stand in awe of them. Well, what are we to do with this? Number one, we're to be pushing the frontiers of domain engagement because Jesus told us to. What's our vision for the glory of God? Disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus. The mission is to disciple the nations. That starts by engaging your local and global domains. Right? So we're to be pushing the frontiers. That's why you hear what you hear out of my lips and our lips as pastors. Is Our job is to push that. Because here's what happens. The very second we stop pushing apostolic movement, we settle, we build walls around ourselves, we become a domain unto ourselves, and our values become safety, security, and more. Jesus doesn't value safety, He doesn't value security, and He doesn't value more. Jesus values risk, and He values laying down your life for the sake of the gospel. For He who loses His life for my sake, can you finish it? 
finds it? Jesus. So we're to push in the frontiers of domain engagement. Jesus promised us that because of the Spirit, we would do greater work than Him. We should expect signs and wonders, like people giving another $50,000 anonymous donation to our work. That's $100,000 given by people in the past six months to that work over there in South Rome. That's a sign and wonder, by the way. Don't think growing back an arm. People just want to get on the grow. Maybe God does. He can grow back arms. Don't think raising dead. He raises dead when he saves lost people. That's, but he does all that other stuff too. But think God loosing people's resources where we worship money. Right? That's a sign and a wonder. Think about the city of Rome giving us a building. That's a sign and wonder. And you know what? Being in all of that is not optional. We should sit this morning and go, Jeez. God. And we stand to sing. There should not be a single person sitting there going, I don't sing. There would be some jumping up going crazy. Get charismatic because He is worthy. We stand in awe. That's what they did. Observation number three. And gosh, i got to speed up. Observation number three. What do we see? Verse 44 and 45. The church comes together and obediently shares in order to meet needs as they arise. By the way, I put in parenthesis here in addition to their tithe. This is important. And all who believed, all who believed, who? The believers. All who believed, everybody who are following Jesus in the community kingdom were together and had all things in common. Do you know how hard it is for me to not drill down on this stuff? Like, and then when I, ah, we'll be here for like six years. All believers are together and they shared, they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. Who's the all? Same all in verse 44, the believers, as any had need. What do we see here? Well, we see that the people have gained a proper understanding of stewardship. The people share God's resources for the good of those in the fellowship who are in need. Well, what does this mean? Well, number one, it does not mean they were communists. This passage gets abused by people who turn the gospel into a political vehicle. That's not what this is. Communism is predicated on atheism. And the Bible's clearly not atheistic. You know what I'm saying? So don't go there. Let's be let's let's mildly use our intellect, okay? The disciples were simply following the Lord's teaching in Psalm twenty four one. I'm not going to do this little experiment because it embarrasses people. I learned don't embarrass people. So I'm not going to do the experiment. But I'll ask you the question, not ask you to raise your hand, okay? If I ask you, do you own anything? People are always raising their hands. Don't raise your hand. But do you own anything? And then let's read Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Do you own anything? No, we own nothing. The base concept of stewardship is you own nothing, everything is God's, and we are managers. That's why Jesus told parables about managing. The master entrusted to the steward five talents, right? Jesus master, us steward, everything we have is given from Him. So the disciples are simply following the Lord's teaching in Psalm 24.1 as I really don't own anything, it's not mine anyway. 
And we see here that need in the fellowship is met by the abundance of the fellowship. So what do we do with this? Number one, we are to hear Jesus and obey His Word. Remember we tell you based discipleship in the kingdom of God is hear and obey? We need to hear and obey. And, and, and unless we miss it, I want you to hear Leviticus 19, 9-10. Now this is in addition to them bringing a tenth of everything they have. Okay? God's concept of stewardship is steeper than what we want it to be. This is in addition to giving to God the first fruits, the tenth. Leviticus 19, 9-10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Now, we're not agricultural, right? We're a service-oriented economy, right? You, you have an education, you have some kind of good or service, you provide it to a company, and they write you a paycheck. So read on to this carefully. When you get your check, don't spend it all right up to the last cent. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. In other words, gather, squeeze out of it all you can for yourself. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You get in the picture? Picking up everything, getting everything out of your vineyard. Here's what he says. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord. Book of Ruth. How did Ruth eat? Because Boaz left the edges of the field for the poor among the people of the Lord to go and have the dignity of working because work is an image of God issue. It's a dignity thing so that they could work and receive the sustenance of their labor. They built up people and they got to eat. In other words, it's the responsibility of the church here to leave enough margin to make sure people in the fellowship had no need. We're to hear and obey. We're to be transformed by biblical stewardship. That's what the church did. What do we see? Observation number four, verse 46, 47, first part. The church operates in the public square, on mission, and in private devotion. 46, first part of verse 47, and day by day attending the temple. Is that public or private? The temple was a very public place. There's marketplace. There's buying and selling. So day by day in the public square, they attend the temple together and breaking bread in their homes privately. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, comma, praising God. This is, this is the continuation of their temple activity and in their homes, praising God and having favor with all the people. Wow. What do we see here? It was natural for them to attend the temple. That was their routine. So these followers of Jesus continue to follow Jesus in their routines. The routines didn't change. They were transformed. That's the essence of domain engagement. You don't quit your job because you come, come to Jesus. You follow Jesus. You follow Jesus in your job. The routines are now transformed into opportunities to make much of Jesus in all domains of society and make disciples. And the disciples are now following Jesus in public obedience and in private fellowship daily, not just on Sunday. So what does this mean? Following Jesus is a lifestyle, not an additional task tacked on to my life. 
Discipleship is a life, not an additional task that you do on Wednesday or Tuesday and work yourself through a workbook. Following Jesus is daily grinding out, obeying Jesus in everything. What do we do with this? Number one, the gospel of the kingdom transforms. It's not an addendum to my idols. And so we as a fellowship are to be walking publicly with Jesus and in private devotion too. We're to wrestle with obeying Jesus in all things. Listen guys, obeying Jesus isn't always easy. It is the delight of our heart because we've been transformed, but it's hard because sometimes obeying Jesus conflicts with this fallen flesh. And this fallen flesh does not want to obey, but Jesus screams from the pages of Scripture, hear me and obey me because he who does is a wise man Builds his house on a rock. And the rains come and the floods come and they beat on the house and it doesn't fall because it's founded on the rock. But he who hears and does not obey is a foolish person who builds their house on the sand. And when all this stuff comes, it knocks it down because there is no foundation. Hearing and obeying Jesus is hard sometimes. But it doesn't alleviate us of the responsibility to hear Him and obey Him. It's the essence of the mark of following Jesus. How you know you're following Jesus? You hear Him and obey Him. How you know you're not a Christian? You don't hear Him and you don't seek to obey Him. Alright? Even worse, you may hear Him and not obey Him. That would equal not Christian. That's the essence of the house being knocked down and not standing. The church heard and obeyed in the public square and in private devotion both. Know this. I wrote this in all caps if you're looking at the notes. Know this is the hardest thing to do in the post-Christian South where idols of culture like to wear Christian t-shirts and the spirit of deception is really good at deceiving. Listen, Satan is a deceiver and a liar and the father of lies. And he loves, loves, loves to disguise himself as justification for why I can't obey Jesus right now. We've not obeyed the Lord and we've done things that are cultural, not necessarily kingdom. And we've backed ourselves into all kinds of places where now we can't obey Jesus. And that's because we followed cultural idols dressed in Christian t-shirts and Christian jargon. And this is the hardest thing to do in the post-Christian South. I understand the struggle. The struggle is real. It is real. But that doesn't alleviate us the responsibility to hear Jesus and obey Jesus and do whatever we have to do to not break the commandments and obey Jesus. We cannot be a they honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me kind of people. Observation five. Last observation. We're almost done. Here we go. Following Jesus. I'm sorry. Uh, I went down. I skipped. Sorry. Observation number five. What do we see? I have a little equation for you. And I'm not math guy. But it's an equation with words. Right? You say, word problem? Kind of. But easy. If I can get it, you can. Me and math are not friends. Okay? So, ready? Public ministry plus fellowship equals transformation of people in domains of society. Look what happens at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. As they obeyed the Lord, they heard the Lord's teaching. And they fellowshiped and they obeyed. They did everything that was commanded. 
There was a transformation of people in all domains of society. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added daily to the church people who were coming into the kingdom. Isn't that glorious? Do you, want, do you long for that? Do you read Acts and go, geez, what's wrong with us? We should. That's, it's, it, the manual is there to point out things that aren't right and things that are right. And how to hear Jesus and obey Jesus. When we read things like that, we, go, we should go, geez, ah, oh, yes. I long for the day that daily each of us are having opportunities to make disciples and, and, and receive the fruit of salvation as the Lord wakes people from death to life. And they hear the gospel and, and believe. And we, we, you know what I'm saying? I want that. I want every single one of us to taste that daily in-gathering of salvation. What does this mean? Well, it means following Jesus publicly, preaching the gospel, healing domains, fixing things that are broken, hearing and obeying, loving each other. This results in people coming to faith in Jesus and society being engaged. What do we do with this? Number one, this is our conclusion. We're almost done. We're to follow Jesus publicly. Listen, guys, follow Jesus publicly. Our faith in Jesus is never to be private. And when we disobey Him, it injects rot and death. And that never works out for anybody involved. One of the things I try to always remind people when counseling is sin is never private, even if you manage to keep it hidden. Sin is an infection that infects the air, the atmosphere, and the culture. As Peter Drucker says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And when the culture is rebellion against God, it messes with the atmosphere. Spent the week with a cool 81-year-old saint who's been in prison for the gospel. And he's written books. And he's Lebanese. And he was there spending the week with just our little crew of guys here who planted out of Northwood. And, and so the sons with, with father and, and so Bob and Omar and us. And, and we're there doing sessions and breakouts and teaching guys about church planting. And, and then this guy spends the rest of the time with us. 81-year-old, amazing co-founder of Frontiers. And in broken Lebanese, he sits in that really flashy place and goes, America need less flash, more holy. So much of what we do is about consuming a product and getting a service. Because we're consumers. That's our culture. We want something. We paid for it. By God, give it to me. This is not how the kingdom works. America needs more holy, less flash. Listen. We're to follow Jesus publicly. Obey Him. Faith is never, faith in Jesus is never private. Preach the gospel. Love people. Listen, and in this particular season, hear this. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Don't be political before your kingdom. Be careful what you post on the Facebook and the Twitter and then like Three Rivers Church. I will unfriend you, and I'm not kidding. There are people who follow our blog from places in the world that blow my mind. I get reports weekly of people reading and listening in Saudi, Indonesia, Malaysia. And if you follow me on one of those social media things, things you put back on my page, people see. 
And I don't want them tying that to me or our people because then they may kill our people or me. And then you've got to look my wife in the eye and go, mm, my bad. I'm serious. Our brother, who I just mentioned before we started, is in a hard place. Be kingdom before you're political. Make sure you hear Jesus and obey Jesus. Let the kingdom dictate your politics. Make disciples. Get messy in helping people that Jesus is adding to the kingdom get in. Don't make unnecessary walls that aren't kingdom. Help people as Jesus brings them to us get into the culture of God's kingdom. Know that public ministry is obeying Jesus because we're operating in the light, not in secret. Public following of Jesus will lead to opportunities to change the world because it's global. Finally, praise. Glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. You know what praise is? Praise is the public recounting back to the Lord Jesus, His excellencies. And that comes... That kind of presupposes some glad and generous. When you see something excellent, you don't go. When we see something that's amazing, we don't grumble. We go, wow. When we see the excellencies of Christ, it should result in praise. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and power and wisdom for from you, through you, and to you are all things. To you be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because we beheld glory. Right? So people doing this should have glad and generous hearts. So I invite you this morning to reflect that. Psalm 147, 1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Which is why we provide us ourselves the opportunity to worship the Lord in response to His Word. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that You would do a work in our